Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and tonight you're hearing Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. This show is a partnership between WNYC in New York and Minnesota Public Radio. On Thursdays, we explore the idea of identity, how our politics have created what I think of as an information identity gap. Well, what does that mean? The cliched stories that we tell each other once we discover how we voted, the assumptions that we make depending on where we live and what we do and the faith communities that we belong to and which parties we're associated with. This show is an effort to stop talking past one another and actively listen to each other. So tonight, the new rules on immigration, and I think they're a powerful way to talk about American identity. As President Trump's restrictions are being enforced and more protests are being planned, here's what I'd like you to consider, and this is where we're going to start our conversation with our guests. How essential is a generous immigration policy to the idea, the identity of who we are as Americans, both collectively and individually? Can we hang on to the ideal of that identity, even as we put tighter limits on immigration? So if you are maybe a son or daughter of immigrant parents, I really think you'd help inform this conversation. I hope you'll call in. And I'd especially like to hear from you if you live in a smaller city or a town where there was a growing community of immigrants and maybe even some tension around that. So think about how essential this idea of a generous immigration policy is to the identity of who we are as Americans and how that's changing as our immigration policies change. Here's the phone number, 844-745-8255. You can tweet me at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Our guest, Ibu Patel, is the founder of Interfaith Youth Corps, a member of former President Obama's Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships, and he's the author of several books, including Acts of Faith, and he's with us from Chicago. And Ibo, Ibu, good to talk to you again. Nice to be with you, Carrie. Tamar Jacoby is with us. She's the president of Immigration Works USA and the author of Someone Else's House. And she's with us tonight from Newark, New Jersey. And Tamar, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Ibu, uh, President Trump and his supporters have said that this change in immigration policy is temporary. It's focused. What's the big deal? I think the reaction that we've seen has been so visceral because it does say something about how we see ourselves as Americans. And I wonder what you'd say about that. This is the heart of the American idea. It goes all the way back to John Winthrop on the Arbella in 1630, speaking to his compatriots saying, we are going to be like a city upon a hill, the eyes of the world upon us. And he was talking about the kind of community we would be building here in the United States of America. And 
President after president has picked up on that image of a city upon a hill. One of my favorites is actually President Reagan, who talked about that city being God-blessed, teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony and peace. If it must have walls, the city should also have doors, as it is open to anyone with the will and heart to get here. That's the America that I know and love and believe so many of us want to belong to. And yet, Tamar, I mean, Americans are not unaware that things are very different than they were in the era that Ibu has been talking about and that our view of what immigration means and maybe the risks that it brings with it have to change as well. So how do we how do we reconcile the two? Well, look, we had waves of immigration over our over our centuries, right? There were early on there were there was a big wave, and then there were in, around in the in the eighteen sixties there was a big wave, eighteen forties, fifties, sixties, and there was another big wave. People came for the Ellis Island generation around the turn of the twentieth century, and then no one came between between basically between nineteen twenty four and nineteen sixty five, and now we're in the middle of really the some people call it the fourth, I would really say the third big waves. Um, so it does it does vary. But but Ibu's obviously right. The idea that, you know, other countries in France, Germany, England are founded on bloodlines, right? And and we're founded on an idea, a bunch of ideas, a set of ideas that are in the in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution. And we don't say, do you have the same bloodlines as I have? And we don't say, did your great-great-great-grandfather know my great-great-great-grandfather? We say, do you believe in that idea and that set of ideas? And if you do, and you want to, you can be a member. Um, that's what we've traditionally said. But it, do, but it does, to pretend it's always been like that or to be sentimental about it isn't, isn't accurate. And we do, I think, have to defend it. If we think that's the kind of America we want to live in, there's always going to be these, when there's a big wave, there are always going to be a lot of people who are going to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not that comfortable with this change. And there's always going to be kind of backlash when there's a big wave. I think we're on the downside of a big wave and we're seeing that backlash and we're going to have to make decisions about what, how we want it to be going forward. What, what's interesting about this, and, and you two probably know this, but when I went back to look into uh, public polling around immigration, I went back into a Gallup poll from 2001 and then and before that, what you still find is this kind of uneasiness. There's a pride in in the fact that America stands for this, but there was also like a constant thread of uneasiness. I mean, here's 2001 from Gallup. 43% of Americans wanted the United States to allow fewer people to come in. This was before September 11th. So, so Ibu, where does this ambivalence come from? Any kind of change causes certain types of stress. Change is, uh, is, is always going to come with a, a variety of implications. And so there are certainly stresses to school systems and hospital systems, uh, stresses to how local cultures and communities operate. I think that this is a part of growth. I mean, I love uh, what the mayor of, of Dayton said about the notion of, of uh, thousands of of mostly Muslim immigrants moving to Dayton, uh, uh, the mayor said, well, the worst thing I think that can happen is that these thousands of families come here and fix up thousands of houses and start thousands of businesses. So let's get started. Uh, that's that's a part of immigration. And another part of immigration is how do you deal with uh, folks whose first language might not be English? How do you deal with folks who, um, who uh, are in the hospital system that you might not be used to dealing with? 
I think that this, these are challenges that our country ought to be able to meet because they're, they're the challenges of growth. Let's take some so, calls here. And, and Tamara, hang on one second. I want to hear from some of our listeners. I'll come right back to you. To Jennifer in Newark, Delaware. Hey, Jennifer. Hi. Glad you called. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I live in a, a university town in Delaware. I, I go to the University of Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who are from Turkey, Israel. India, um, you know, I learn about their culture. They learn about America. We are better for it. You know, the teaching that we each give each other makes us better people. So, you know, living, just just being, you know, living as a white person in my white red town, you know, that, that doesn't make me a better person. I'm from Illinois originally, and, you know, the, the traveling I've done, going to school like I've been doing, um, learning about new people and new cultures, that makes me a better person. Jennifer, has there been, uh, how large is the town that you're going to school in? I mean, it's the University of Delaware, so. Oh, okay. So uh, a fairly large town. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask whether there has been any tension as, you know, the town starts to absorb a growing immigrant population and really recognizes what that may mean. The good and some of the things, and some of the challenges that that brings with it. Um, we have been very welcoming to um, the people that are coming here from Syria or India or whatever. Um, I haven't seen any negatives on it. I've only seen positives. All right. I appreciate the call. Tomorrow, you were going to say. Well, I was going to, um, Ibu talked about change being what's making people uneasy Difference makes people uneasy, too. I mean, let's be honest. Human beings are tribal. And, um, you know, we, we um, again, that's what makes the American experiment difficult. Um, most people are, you know, you like people who look like them and have the same habits as them and sound like them and have genes that are like theirs. Genes, G-E-N-E-S. Um, and they're skeptical of the people who are different. And what's amazing about America is that we built this country that transcends that, but it's, but the, but the, Let's be honest about human beings' impulses and kind of what we're up against. Ibu, what I think is interesting about this, though, is I I think if you asked a lot of Americans, you know, the big question, are you proud that the United States accepts people from all over the world, mostly in a pretty welcoming way, that that is our history and that is, you know, that is our identity? I think most Americans would say, yes, they are proud of that. And so... Then, then where we are today is what does it kind of mean in real time, and what does it mean in your community when, as P, as T- Tamar has just said, when people look different, they come with different cultures and traditions, and your town is going to be changed by that. Right, and and it might well be that your town is going through a variety of difficult times. Everything from a local factory leaving to uh, an, an opioid crisis. Uh, there's a variety of things that are happening across towns in America that people like me, frankly, who live in large cities have not paid that much attention to. And I've, uh, as I've told friends of mine, um, when I go to a, a college town, which is what, what I do frequently, I'm on a different college campus just about every week, I frequently ask how the Muslim population and the refugee population is doing there. And I too seldom ask how the returning vets and the displaced factory workers are doing. And folks like me who exist on the progressive end of the continuum have to widen our concern. And and 
this past year has definitely taught me that. And there's no doubt. Ibu, tell me why. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that when you say widen your concern that you were somewhat, what, dismissive, misunderstanding about what the economic uh, angle of this was? I think selective. I see. I was selective. And there were in, in the... In the world in which I live, which is a largely uh, professional, progressive, highly educated urban world, um, I did not pay that much attention to displaced factory workers and returned vets. These are not people who are a significant part of my circle. And that's an abdication of citizenship on my part. That is something that I and I think people like me ought to be doing more of. That's what uh, President Obama would talk about when he said, you know, we have to have a wider sense of we. Uh, And I think in some of these towns, the presence of significant numbers of newcomers causes all sorts of stresses that the town might not be immediately used to. I think that we have to think about this country as as 320 million people that is moving into the 21st century that needs to become a globalized knowledge economy, and we need to do this together. And I think immigrants are a big part of that. Uh, There's a story recently about um, a a Syrian doctor with a visa who was not allowed to board his plane back to the United States because of the recent executive order and therefore could not see his patients in Chicago. That hurts everybody. And that's very practical. That's not just the American idea. That's the sense that here's a doctor with a legal visa who was coming back to see his patients after a trip abroad, and he was not allowed to board his flight. That person is an American making a contribution to America. We are stronger because of that person. Marnin says on Twitter, I care less about maintaining identity than doing the right thing, but both require that we welcome immigrants. Tamara, I, I want to hear you on, um, you know, President Trump is also saying that uh, he moved quickly to do this because he thinks this is in the interest of national security, but he is also interested in immigration reform. Do you think what has happened so far with these executive orders on immigration is a foundation on which to build some kind of comprehensive reform? Gosh, um, you know, those of us who are looking for immigration, been working for immigration reform and looking for immigration reform, as I have for more than a decade, you know, we hold out hope that anything is a foundation for immigration reform. And there's an argument you could make that would say that President Trump is going to that that a lot of the American public, and this is this is actually true, that a lot of the American public does feel that immigration is out of control, and it's not necessarily that they don't like immigrants, but they feel that that we're not deciding that that people are coming, and it's because of global economic forces, and right. we're not deciding, and they're not sure it's in our interests, and they're not sure we've been deciding on the basis of our interests. And I think what Donald Trump said on the campaign trail, where he said we're going to make immigration policy in our interests for a change. That really resonated with a lot of people. And the notion of getting control resonated with a lot of people. And so, you know, in the most, most, most hopeful vision of this, you could say, as, you know, for example, the Wall Street Journal editorial page has said, you know, let President Trump 
get control and calm people down and have enforcement that's meaningful, and then he'll move on to immigration reform. You know, I, I'm not betting my house or my car on it, but, you know, there's, there's, there's always hope. I, I, um, I, well, I have to say, getting control, though, of immigration, you know, you know there's net migration now back to Mexico, that the 11 million people that are already here, no matter what President Trump said as a candidate about deportation, are going to be very difficult to send back to the countries that they came. What does getting control really mean? Well, I mean, I think uh, let's put ourselves in the shoes for a minute of and, you know, I think it's complicated. We're thinking about these Americans, you know, Arizona is different from West Virginia is different from Chicago. But let's put your let's put ourselves in the shoes of a Trump voter who's worried and skeptical. You know, for years they've seen this TV footage of people running across the border and there's 11 million people here who, whose names we don't know and have never undergone a background check. And every now and again you turn on the TV and somebody who was born someplace else goes into a shopping mall and shoots people or a school or an airport or whatever it is. So, I mean, I don't I don't think it's I don't think they have to be bigoted to sort of wonder what's going on. I mean, you know, some of them may be bigoted, but I think it's fair for people to say, well, wait a minute. Now, I think a lot of the problem there was we didn't understand how much immigrants could benefit us. And so we didn't have the right policies to let enough people in, actually. I mean, I think all those people came illegally because there were jobs here that weren't getting done. We should have realized they were good for us and allowed them to come legally. I don't think it's a problem necessarily that we've let too many in, but I don't think it's crazy or, again, necessarily bigoted for a lot of Americans to say, looks out of control. You're listening to Indivisible Radio here. And if you've just joined the conversation, I talk about identity on Thursday nights. And we're talking about what happened at the end of last week with this executive order that President Trump signed that limited immigration uh, from seven specific countries. And of course, the debate that's going on overall about immigration. And tonight, it's about where our sense of ourselves as Americans fits in with the way we handle immigration and some of the changes that are coming under the Trump administration. Ibu Patel with us tonight from Chicago. He's the founder of Interfaith Youth Corps and Tamar Jacoby. She's the president of Immigration Works USA. I want to hear from you tonight. Perhaps you're the son or daughter of immigrant parents. I think you'd help inform the conversation. If you live in a smaller city or a town where there's a growing community of immigrants and maybe even some tension around that, it would be valuable to hear your perspective, too. Here's the number, 844-745-8255. That's talk. And you can find me on Twitter, at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag Indivisible Radio right back to your calls and your questions. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible.
This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Carrie Miller, and tonight you're hearing Indivisible from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. You hear that, uh, a national conversation in a time of change. And one of the changes that we've seen early on in the Trump administration, new rules around immigration. And we're talking about how that fits with American sense of ourselves, our identity. Tamar Jacoby with us, Ibu Patel. And I'm going to go right back to the phones here to Hani in Columbus, Ohio. Hani, thank you so much for waiting. I appreciate that. Tell me what you're thinking about. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. Uh, well, I'm from Columbus and uh, son of uh, immigrants, so second generation. And I just feel like this wave of anti-immigrant uh, policy that's being driven by nothing more than fear and xenophobia is really just unfounded. Not only is everybody here, unless you're Native American, you know, an immigrant at some point, but there's this narrative that immigration or immigrants are a uh, burden or detriment Whereas, in fact, we would not be the most prosperous country in the world without immigrants. We have all these high-tech industry jobs coming in from overseas. Uh, We attract the best talent in the world. And if it weren't for that, we wouldn't be who we are today. I'm glad for the call. Thanks to Katrina in – or Katerina, I think, in Danbury, Connecticut. Hey, Katerina, hi. Thank you. Hi. Hi, What are you thinking about? how are you? Doing good. What are you thinking about? Uh – so I actually wanted to call. I've been listening to Invisible every night, but I kind of felt very um, – it felt like it was a personal topic today just because I'm the son – I'm the son. I'm the <laughs> daughter of immigrants, um, first-generation citizen. Uh, parents came over in a wave during the 70s. Um, they were from Portugal. And um, I actually married – my husband was is an immigrant, um, came from Brazil. I actually married him. Um, In 2009, around that time during the Bush administration, there was a lot of uh, deportation and a lot of talk with ICE. Um, I married my husband so that we could um, stay together. Um, And I live in Danbury, Connecticut, and we have a large uh, immigrant population, both from um, Dominican Republic, from Ecuador, from India, just from all over. And it's part of our identity. It's part of who we are. Um, And I absolutely love living where I live. But during this campaign, it was very evident that there were a lot of people that lived where I live that did not think the same. And we had a wave during the Bush administration where people actually left and our city felt it. I mean, there were businesses that ended up closing. There were workers that ended up leaving and our our businesses suffered. And I feel that this is this might happen in the near future, that people will get scared. They will return back. Um, you know, a lot of them might get deported. They might come back. I have friends that spent $20,000 coming from Ecuador, got deported, and came right back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think that there's a bigger issue at hand than just deporting people, than just, you know, immigration reform at, you know, the basic level. There's a okay. lot of different things that have to be looked at. Let me Thanks very much, Katerina, for the call. Uh, Ibo, I want to come back to you on something that Tamar said about this that you're, you don't, I think you said, Tamar, you're, you, it's not fair to be called xenophobic or bigoted because you have some concerns, perhaps economically, perhaps socially in your communities around this. What would you say about that? Because I feel like the conversation, the debate around immigration gets shut down when one side says, well, if you don't think we should allow more immigrants, more refugees to come into this country, then you're bigoted and that's your problem. 
you know, that that's kind of the way we we seem to position this debate. What, how would you speak to that? I'm not interested in calling just about anybody a bigot. Um, I am interested in uh, a broad scope of conversations with a broad scope of people. And I'm perfectly willing to admit that there were a set of things that were primary concerns for a large number of my fellow citizens, which were not high up enough on my priority list. Just to name a couple, displaced factory workers and returned vets. I want to learn more about uh, people and those parts of the country for whom those concerns are absolutely central. I'm not interested in starting conversations with, um, uh, I always knew you were a bigot now that I know that you voted for Trump. On the other hand, uh, I think everybody gets to draw their own line as to where they think racism is. Um, as I like to tell people, I'm not buying a cupcake at the KKK bake sale. I don't care where the proceeds are going. <laughs> but but beyond uh, but beyond that line, I'm interested in a wide range of conversations with a wide range of people. And those conversations do not begin with, I always knew you were a bigot. Uh, they begin with, tell me about your idea of America and what your life looks like here. Okay. Tomorrow, so, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think the people who are scared of immigration are wrong. Like, like, don't mistake my view. I mean, I think I agree with the people who are saying immigration is great for America. It's great for the economy. It's great for our vitality. It's been what makes America great. I don't think the people who are frightened, I think they're misinformed and they're kind of acting on gut instinct and they're acting on the way immigration has happened over the years. But I don't, I agree. I don't think it pays to say you're racist. I mean, what was interesting over this weekend, you know, was... I don't, I'm not sure people were saying I want – I mean, I think in part they were saying I want a more div- diverse America. But I also think they were saying, you know, we don't stop people who've been here a long t- – or, you know, people law-abiding people in airports and arrest them just because of where they came from. They were reacting to discrimination, which is a little bit different than saying I definitely want to live in a diverse country, if you know what I mean. And, I mean, I'm not saying they're not related, but I think what shocked people this weekend was – was the was the way it was done and i mean i think it was it was great to see how it shocked people of all different political views you know these weren't necessarily all democrats and they weren't people who necessarily go to protests and they just said this is not how it works in america we don't stop doctors at the airports who've done no wrong just because of where they come from you know i think um, i think so it, tomorrow you make a really good point i don't want to miss it here that had this been rolled out differently, and now even the Trump administration admits that it was not rolled out well, but let's say it had been rolled out, it had been executed more professionally, and yet the effect was the same. How do you think that would have looked to most Americans? Well, well again, I mean, imagine it happening over months and years, right. right? Imagine what Trump really wants to do is reduce the number of legal immigrants who come. And, you know, that doesn't have to be violent and that doesn't have to look ugly and that could happen slowly. And in the end, I think it would be very bad for us. But, but yeah, that could be in the cards. Um, you know, the, the poll that you referred to, the Gallup poll, they do that every year. And they ask people, do you think immigration should be increased, decreased, or kept the same? And it's pretty consistent two to one people saying the same or increased. Mostly you're saying the same. So it's only about a third who usually say decrease it. But there are a third who say decrease it. And again, the fact that it's been seemed out of our control and so much of it has been illegal for the past 20 years has has 
raise the numbers who say, well, wait a minute, maybe we need to we need to pause. So, again, I just think we need to remind ourselves we need to we need to this is not we need to keep fighting for this and and fighting for it in a way that isn't about calling people racist and just saying diversity is glorious. That's speaking to people who kind of like the 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 old fashioned, you know, America's we know it, their old fashioned kind of 1950s towns and saying, you know, wait a minute, maybe it'll be good for that. Well, and I'd really like to hear from some of the people that live in those so-called 1950s kinds of towns. If you live in some of the more rural parts of the country, we're we're broadcasting in a lot of different states through a lot of different stations uh, tonight. I'd love to hear from maybe your experience in your town where a growing population of Uh, immigrants, new arrivals, has made changes, some good, some that have been challenging for the community. How has that kind of tested your view of immigration? Here's the number, 844-745-8255. I'm on Twitter, at Carrie. It's K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use hashtag Indivisible Radio. Okay, to the phones to Mike in North Dakota. Mike, um, would you tell me where you're at in North Dakota? I am uh, in Cole Harbor, North Dakota. Okay, good, good. And that is a smaller town, isn't it? Uh, about 100 people. Glad you called. I am, <laughs> okay. I, I am, I'm near an, an oil boom. I actually work in the oil field area where there's a lot of people from out of the area that have come in. Uh-huh. So in my experience with them coming in has actually been good. They filled, you know, needed jobs or, you know, we needed, we needed help out here with what was going on. Right. But... My experience is mostly with legal immigrants coming in and working, and I'm. I feel that the that I've always been a libertarian, so my view is you're willing to follow the rules, and it's all about the identity of our nation being a land of laws and following the rules. If I have to follow them, you shouldn't be allowed to be here illegal and not follow the rules. So I guess, in my view, it's more it's more about the people that are coming in not following the rules, and the rest of us have to abide by them. And I'm a fan of of, bringing, of allowing people to have amnesty and come in and become legal citizens and not, and not be sent to jail or deported immediately. Mm-hmm. It's important to me to allow those people that are here working and being positive citizens and productive citizens to stay. Okay. I, I really appreciate the call, Mike. And, and Ibu, I want to add this from Twitter. Anna says, Americans' view on immigration has been jaded due to illegal immigration. Do you think that's right? Uh, maybe. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, uh, uh, I, I think that depends on where you sit. Um, look, you know, my my take on this is if you it's, – it's, I think it's like Mike's. If you work hard, if you play by the rules, if you love this country, if you, if you contribute, then you belong to this country and it belongs to you. And that's, I mean, that's straight George Washington. That's straight, you know, the bosom of America is open to the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions. And it's the American genius. The American genius is this country will give you a place and you will build it up. And that's why we have a nation. And it's a precious and sacred and fragile thing. And we ought to, we ought to defend that and we ought to build it. But, but so Ibu, I, you, you I'll know. I'll dissent from that a little. Yeah, go ahead. Can I dissent? Go, yeah, of course. So, um, I mean, I think we do want to be welcoming, but I don't think we can say to anyone in the world, you know, if it's not working out for you where you are, come here. Um, you know, it's going to, I mean, I really think what drives most people here is economic supply and demand and some refugees. And, you know, it kind of has to 
it does have to be in our interest. And I think letting that economic supply and demand kind of determine it is is not a bad way to think about it. I mean, just saying anyone who'd ra- who would wants to come here and live by our values, I don't think our values would mean very much if you know a billion people from from somewhere could kind of land. You know, our values would be hard to keep up. So I don't. I do think Trump's right that the policy ought to be based on our interests, not on not on everybody in the world having the right to come well, here. Th- then, tomorrow, where do refugees fit into that? Well, I think refugees, we ha- that's part of our values, that we do want to, you know, some of the most vulnerable people in the world, we are willing to have them come, you know, with li- in, with some limits. I mean, in fact, you know, we have, over over the past um, couple of decades, you know, it's, they're very small numbers, actually. It's like somewhere between 70 and 100,000. That's a tiny, that's a pretty drop in the bucket compared to our immigration policy. Um, and, and you know, that's a decision. And I think there is room for that. But I don't think we can say any of the billion people in the world who aren't happy where they are can come. Uh, Maritza, yeah, just, to, just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm not, tomorrow, I'm, I'm not quite saying that, right? I want to describe a general ethic and say this is where, uh, this is where the American founders were, Clearly, that was a very different time, but they were describing an aspirational new nation, the first diverse democracy. That is an ethic. It's something that you know, uh, you'll know. you see mayors say, uh, we're getting immigrants. Please come here. Please come to Baltimore. You'll hear Mayor Bloomberg say, whether you came on the Mayflower or you arrived yesterday, you are fully American. We want you to contribute. So I think that that's a general Ethic and the question yeah, is what I are a set of, as you said, ethic. self-interest laws and policies that follow from that. Tomorrow, you were I saying. Into the general, I buy into the general ethic. I just think we also have to think about how to implement it. And again, I think this distinction about whether our immigration policy is based on our interest or immigrants' rights is an important distinction, and and that and that that's partly what bugs a lot of those people in West Virginia is that they think it's been based on immigrants' rights and not on our interests. And, and I'm, I'm not, I, I, I agree with your aspiration, and I, I understand what you're talking about, but I think we have to remember that, uh, that we have interests too. Maritza Absolutely. says on Twitter, the proud daughter of two immigrants who have made this country their home, paid taxes, are homeowners, and have two college grads. Back to the phones here. If you're trying to get in on the phone lines pretty full, you can join me on Twitter at Carrie MPR and use hashtag Indivisible Radio. But but be persistent. Call back because I want to hear from as many of you as we can to Alicia in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Alicia, we were just talking about West Virginia. So welcome. Good to have you on the lines. Yes, it's good to be here. Um, so I actually am a child of immigrants myself, but I have a bit of a different perspective because I am a child of European immigrants with an English mother and a German father. Uh-huh. And so especially in the small town that I live in, I get a lot of, oh, well, you're the white kind, so we're not really worried about immigrants like you. <laughs> but I still face a lot of um, bigotry about immigrants, and it's something that deeply bothers me because I think that regardless of where we're from, if you're against immigrants, you're against all of us because, um, like the last caller said, my mother has paid taxes, she's a homeowner, I'm a homeowner, I'm in college, I have a daughter of my own, and we are contributing to this country. And I see myself no different than an immigrant that comes from Mexico or Syria. We are all the same. Ibu, would you tackle that? And thank you, Alicia. I do think there's this sense of uh, th- there's the good kind of immigrant and the and the not so good kind of immigrant. I, I appreciate Alicia bringing that up, and I mean I just think it's interesting to to think that the that uh, we've got this kind of 
bogeyman archetypal notion of the of the bad Syrian immigrant. Well, you know, one of those supposedly bad Syrian immigrants came here about a hundred years ago and and had a had a son uh, named Steve Jobs who went went on to do some pretty important things for for America as a country and and its economy. Uh, I just I think that this notion of some immigrants are good and some immigrants are bad, and we know that because of their skin color or their language or their religion. It's just against every fiber of this nation's being. You know, Ibu, I, I was reading something that, that you wrote about being Indian, American, and a Muslim, and how each part of that is a really essential part of your identity. But it took you, it took you a while to really understand how, how each dimension of that fit together. I feel like you're, you're kind of living what what Alicia is calling to say, that there was a maybe a place and a time where you would have been perceived as not quite the kind of immigrant that we want. Well, try being named Ibu in the western <laughs> suburbs of Chicago in the 1980s. Ah, and there is uh, that. But, but we, look, all were, we all were the type that was right, once not right. welcomed, right? And, you know, I mean, every uh, one of us. My Even if you're Irish would, or German, mm-hmm. I, I mean the funny thing is, is being Irish in you know in the in the late 19th century or German in the early 20th century, these were not pretty things, right? Uh, um, they were they were really challenging things, and I appreciate all of the folks calling in and saying, my you know my grandfather was an immigrant, and now people look at me as if. Uh, as I'm, as if I've been in this country for for generations and generations, but I know how hard it was for my grandfather, right? And I imagine if you think back to your grandfather's time, you wish folks were a little bit nicer to him, to the accent that he had, to the food that he ate, to the strange faith that he practiced, at least to the folks around him. Things that now that we think are just fully American, right? I mean, the fact that we have. Uh, um, only Catholics and Jews in the Supreme Court right now. Not a single Protestant. I mean, if you if you woke uh, if if you woke an American from the 1920s up from his or her grave and and told that person that they would they would crawl back in that grave, they'd be so shocked, right? So all of these people that we think are just um, kind of natural Americans, actually they're they're the descendants of immigrants. They're the builders of this country. We have new architects now too. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Indivisible Radio from Minnesota Public Radio here in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a conversation about immigration and identity. Stay with us. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Indivisible Radio. It's public radio's national conversation in a time of change. Tonight, we're talking about identity and changing immigration policies. Tamar Jacoby is with us. She's the president of Immigration Works USA. And Ibu Patel is with us. He's founder of Interfaith Youth Corps. Uh, Tamar, I wanted to give you a chance to, to respond to Ibu there before we go back to the calls. But I thought I heard you saying 
at one point, there was a time when we would all have been considered to be the kinds of immigrants that Americans didn't want. Which is a yeah, point I, I don't want to miss. The, yeah, yeah. I was making just the same point he went on to make that you know Irish people used to say about Irish, you know, no Irish need apply, and think of them as as Benjamin Franklin thought that 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 some Germans were were had the wrong complexion and That's wouldn't right. fit in here, and certainly Germans and Irish and Jews and Southern and Eastern Europeans have all in their time been considered foreigners, um, but you know the word we haven't used at all. Uh, is the is integration you know people used to used to use the word assimilation and that's out of fashion now but most immigrant groups do eventually kind of buy they come maybe with somewhat different values and they bring different values that are good but they also eventually kind of buy into a lot of what it means to be American. And I think that's the other thing that people today are afraid is not happening. It is happening. Right. It's happening maybe even faster than it happened 100 years ago. But it's, it's, it's a word that needs to be part of the conversation. We're not, we're not just a big pot of foreigners. People do come and buy into, the, into American ideals. And I think people are, that's a lot of what people are afraid of now, I, that I'm that isn't so, happening. I'm really glad you brought that up because I, I think we have a situation where if you hear somebody speaking another language in your community or you call in and the the whole time is asking you if you want, you know, if you want to hear this in Spanish, there's this perception that the people that are coming here, the immigrants, are not assimilating or integrating as fast as they once did. And maybe and Americans have believed are. that. No, maybe they maybe are. Americans have believed are. that for years. Yeah, but they but they are actually. I mean, there've been studies done. You know, if you compare how fast they're learning English today to how fast they learned a hundred years ago, they're learning it faster because you know TV helps and you learn you speak English in your home country. And I mean, and but you do hear people say, you know, my grandmother learned English overnight, and I'm still hearing Spanish in the supermarket. So you know, people have myths and misconceptions about how easy it was in the past, and every little bump in the road they see today, they, they turn it into a, you know, it feeds their fears. But, but, it's, but it's an important part of the picture, and we need to talk about it. If we're going to be a diverse country, we also have to hold out an ideal of some kind of integration, not, you know, melting pot assimilation, but some kind of integration. A, a call here from Judith in Carbondale, Colorado. Hi, Judith. Hi, how are you? Doing good. Glad you called. What are you thinking about? So I was just thinking about how this little town has changed. I was brought here at age three to Aspen, Colorado, just down the way. And immigration has blown up here, and it's a mixed bag. I mean, I'm an immigrant. I can see how it stresses out schools. And, you know, everyone's really scrambling to, in the last maybe decade or so, like how are we going to deal with all of these kids? Um, Carbondale is 5,000 people, Mm -hmm. and it went from being Anglo primarily to Schools are now 80% Hispanic, and a lot of the teachers and school, school districts don't know how to deal. So a lot of the Anglo parents pull their kids out and take them to other schools. But I would say there's, um, you know, two maybe two communities. You have a really tight-knit um, Latino community, and a lot of people do look down on the Latino community. But at the same time, there's the hypocrisy of needing them. They're the ones that, you know, go up to Aspen and they do all the jobs that a lot of the Anglo people will not do. So mm-hmm. um, I, I've seen over the last, I don't know, I've been here, you know, since I was three years old back in, you know, since 1980, I've seen um, maybe people try to reach out a little bit, but overall I think it's, it's two communities and there's a lot of hypocrisy 
like, yeah, we need you. We want you to do the gardening jobs. We want you to clean these rooms. But at the same time, like, we really want to complain about, you know, how being taken over. <laughs> so, yeah, Ibu, I, I think I, I think uh, Judith has put that really well. And I think it's fair for people to look around their community, especially in a town of 5,000, and say, how do we accommodate that? How, how do we make this work for all of the upside and the challenges? W- what would you say to that? First of all, thank you so much for that call. I think that that's so important. And this is why people who are, I think, asking reasonable questions about the the pace of change in their communities, uh, there's a whole set of questions that are not bigoted at all. They're, act, they're ap- actually totally reasonable. So this is this is who America is going to be going into the future. All the demogra- demographic trends suggest that. I think the questions then become, how do our institutions, education, health, culture, government, etc., adapt in a way so that this can be a benefit to the widest majority of people possible. These are a whole set of job opportunities in schools and hospitals. If you recognize that your schools are going to be 60, 80 percent Latino or 30, 40 percent Arab Muslim, those are whole new ways of thinking about education for a new and diverse population. One of the things that concerns me right now is that we've got this big uh, dusk dust cloud of yowling about uh, political discourse, which is obviously really important. Uh, That's a part of the the American tradition um, uh, from protests to to talk radio. I'm interested in the the small towns in Colorado that Judith talks about and, and asking the question, what does it look like to knit together an integrated civic life amongst uh, different populations that live effectively parallel existences right now, because this is going to be who America is 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 going to be. It's who we're becoming. I'd much rather us have an integrated civic life than just uh, than just a, a dust cloud of yowling at each other. <laughs> Brooke says, "Became an American in 2014. I'm no different now than I was before, but I get perceived differently." Tomorrow, you were going to add. Well, I was going to respond to the caller who talked about the jobs. So we haven't talked much about, we haven't used too many numbers, we haven't talked about economics, but just let me throw out a couple economic numbers about how immigrants benefit the U.S. So immigrants are 13% of the population, 25% of the doctors, 25% of the nurses, 25% of the patents are held by immigrants, right? So just about double their percent of the population. Um, there, we, there would be no Silicon Valley in the boom years, in the dot-com boom years without immigrants. They were a third of the workers and a quarter of the entrepreneurs. And at the low end, all those people doing the gardening and the cleaning that the Carbondale caller talked about, those people are also key to the economy because they they're the they're they're the only thing that's making our labor force grow, and Americans are getting more and more educated, and more people. Some people still want to be garden, do gardening and cleaning, but fewer and fewer. So immigrants are key to the economic future. That's what the, that's where the damage. You know, if Trump has his way in cutting legal immigration, that's where the damage is going to start. Where the pinch is going to start. And, and by the way, and I then, think the businesses know this, don't they? Businesses Tomorrow? do know yeah. this. Businesses know this, and business, you know, it goes up and down, but businesses know this. But then the hard part, you know, that should be easy, like figuring out, well, we need these workers and it's good for us. That should be like, that's math and economics. The hard part is what we've been talking about today is how do you, once they're here doing the jobs, how do we make community? Um, so, you know, it's, it's um, 
And and I mean, I agree with you, but we're going backwards right now. And so the question is, how do we get back in forward gear and go forward? Tess says on Twitter, I'm an Ellis Island immigrant who saw the Statue of Liberty from the deck of an immigrant ship. I'm a Ph.D. My brother is an M.D. To the phones to Kathy in Oxford, New Jersey. Hey, Kathy, thanks for waiting. Hi. 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 I will make this very fast, but in my opinion, I think the focus of the conversation really should be more on um, assimilation, and I know you integration, in my mind, are two different things. Um, but from a small-town point of view, when everyone's very homogenous, it's not anti-immigrant. It's just sort of the lifestyle, and I'd love to see a national conversation on a standard for what is the expectation for assimilation or for integration. I think that would be ever so helpful because so much of it is just a cultural misunderstanding. Kathy, how uh, lifestyle issues. Can I ask you how large Oxford, New Jersey is? It's, it's about twenty seven hundred. Okay. People. All right. Ibu, um to her to her concerns here about integration. Yeah, so I think that it's it is a challenging thing to have a diverse democracy. Right. There's there's no doubt about that. But but we are a diverse democracy. And to ask people to aspire to some kind of monoculture is just not who America ever was or who we are now. I mean, let's let's remember that it's not that long ago that assimilation or integration meant for a lot of people, you have to stop believing in the pope. We view uh, uh Catholicism is so integral to American life now that that shocks us. But it's really only 65 years ago that John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States. And that happened actually uh, um, up against a, to use the word yowl again, (laughs) a huge uh, anti-Catholic yowl. So I think what's important is that we have a, a spirit of welcome and the people who come and are welcomed have a spirit of contribution and that we, to use John F. Kennedy's language, are able to identify and weave together common threads into a tight civic and social fabric. And so if I think about the the towns that uh, uh, the last couple callers called from, I mean, if it's anything like some of the small towns I know, if you if you go out into the, uh, um, to the uh, playing field on a Saturday, you'll see three different soccer games going on, right? There will be the soccer game with largely white European Americans, a soccer game with That's largely right. la- Latino immigrants, and a soccer game, soccer game amongst largely African immigrants. Well, it's, it's, it is a hugely important thing to do for America, for somebody to walk over and say, hey, let's all play together and we'll mix the teams up. That, so that's where I, I America actually... is built. I actually thought that the caller saying that we should have that you know there ought to be a national conversation that has holds out some expectations around integration. I think I agree with her. I don't think they have to be I think I think even when you say it has to be pressure for total conformity or monoculture, I think there's a big spectrum between monoculture and and no integration. And I think some expectations around, and I think, you know, in some ways we do. We want people to learn English. We want people to be part of the economy. We want people to send their kids to college. We want people to, I mean, I think there are certain things that we kind of want people to do and that people will be better off if they do. And it, it wouldn't be terrible to have a, not a, not saying, you know, you must drop your Latino name or never speak Spanish or, you know, not not undue pressures. But I don't think it would be terrible to hold out some kind of welcoming 
a sense of what you what of goals for for what we have in common. Can I can I ask you too how before we go back to another call um, how whether you think this is generational. I, I mean, when you look at Tamar, you've probably seen this. The Public Religion Research Institute comes out with this poll recently that finds that 51 percent of younger Republicans, they're between 18 and 29, they're much more likely to see immigration as a plus for the U.S. And, you know, this isn't a revelation because I think the younger generation has more uh, open views about a lot of social and cultural issues. But, I mean, are we seeing kind of the end of some of these attitudes? Do you have hope that generation generational change is coming on this? Yes. I mean, but there are places <laughs> yeah, where... You don't sound even, quite so sure. There are places where even young people are, you know, frightened and, and skeptical, and we have to address them. I'm not... I'm not I, we, and we have to address them. Call here from Jenna in Roswell, Georgia. Hey, Jenna, where is Roswell, Georgia? How far from Atlanta, and is it a small town? Um, we are about 20 minutes north of Atlanta. Okay. Not super small, but we're very... We're a bit out. We're just outside enough to be our own community, but okay. close enough to where we are definitely part of the international hub. All right, glad you called. You're thinking about integration, is that right? Yes. What I'm hearing a lot of people talking about is how they feel that our particular American system of values becomes or may become threatened when too many immigrants from too many different places come in and bring their own beliefs. But I think that. When we talk about our values that way, to me, what it really shows is that either our convictions and our values are very weak or our systems of values themselves are becoming weaker. And the thing about integration is that it's a two-way street. It's not just about asking people who are coming in to be integrated. It's also about, as the existing community accepting people in, we need to learn how to be more open and we need to realize our potential as a nation for growth and for learning and for change based on the immigrants that then become part of our nation and make us better. And I think what really troubles me about Donald Trump's America First rhetoric when he talks about immigration and the recent immigration ban is that with when you start to say things like this group first, it's never a circle that becomes bigger or more inclusive. It is always a circle that gets smaller. And I don't want to live in a nation where America First begins to define only one very small group of people and not represent the diversity that makes America great. All right. I, I appreciate the call. You know, Ibu, I was thinking as I was listening to Jenna that uh, Tamar ran down those those statistics about the contributions from immigrants and the jobs and the economy. And I, I think that still, though, is not persuasive for a significant number of Americans when they think about immigration. So I think that this is largely community by community. Okay. If, if you live in Chicago and you're the general manager of the Sheraton Hotel and 80% of your housekeeping staff and 50% of your staff, period, are recent immigrants, it's really good for you, right? If you're in Silicon Valley and you're a venture capitalist and a quarter of the companies in your portfolio were started by immigrants. And I have a colleague here in Chicago who was a venture capitalist. He said, I do not have a single company in my portfolio with, in a, with a white, white European-American leadership team homogeneously. Every single one 
is a diverse leadership team. And that's not legally mandated. That's just how these companies emerge, which is much more the economy at both the high end and at the low end that Tamar is talking about. But if you live in in a in a town in which a factory is closed, in which uh, your school has gone from 95 percent white to 60 percent uh, immigrant in 10 years, and it's causing significant stress on the teaching staff and on the nursing staff in the hospital, that's I can see how that that's a challenge and an issue. So at a time of racket, rapid economic change, when diversity is inevitable, right? So it's, it's, it, it is happening. It's going to continue to happen for all sorts of reasons. We have to be able to change. Our, we have to be able to adapt our civic institutions, our schools, our hospitals, our cultural institutions, so that they provide value to a wide range of people. And we have to be able to knit together our social and civic life. Ibu, a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Tamar, thank you very much for making this work. Really good to have your views. Great to be here. And Michelle in Cincinnati called to say, I voted for Obama twice. I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm supportive of Trump's policy because we need to stop Muslim immigrants who want to do us harm from coming into this country. You can keep the conversation going on Twitter. Find me at Kerry, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use hashtag Indivisible Radio and tune in on Monday night for Kai Wright and reporters from The Economist as they look at this first 100 days of the Trump administration and how it's being perceived from outside of the United States. Good radio. Listen in to Indivisible Radio, 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. on Eastern. And I'll see you right back here on Thursday. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.